Welcome back, everybody, to Course Offside, the podcast that brings the convergence of sport, media, and entertainment to life. Absolutely delighted to be joined again today by Dr. Rob Wilson and Dr. Dan Palumley. Guys, thanks for coming back. I know we're all biting our nails as we edge towards the end of the transfer window. The clock is ticking. There's lots of rumours. There's lots of signings that have already been made. Let's kick off by really discussing beyond what it can mean on the pitch. What does a hundred million signing of a Harry Kane bring to a Bayern Munich? Thanks, Neil. Well, great to be back, first of all. You alluded there to a transfer window, so you obviously couldn't find a better signing than Dan and I for this uh, this podcast, which is great news for us and hopefully great news for people that are listening. Transfer window has been really frantic already, hasn't it? Lots of clubs going in doing their business quite early. I think that the kind of the name of the game in this transfer window has been squad building, so making sure that that teams have got depth. And we've heard a few managers talk about, you know, needing at least two or three people to cover particular positions and upgrading. Sometimes the bench, or sometimes looking at the academy prospects coming through. And of course, we've had the preseason tours that have been fairly well documented, especially as a Man United fan. I can't remember Manchester United having so much scrutiny over a preseason tour as I've seen this year. So it's all been about squad building rather than these kind of marquee mega signings that that teams can arguably game change their finishing position. And Dan and I would often talk about the fact that in the Premier League, at least, in terms of prize money, each position in the Premier League is worth about one and a half million quid. Then you add in all your prize money from European competition. So teams that are playing in the Champions League will probably be able to play in the Champions League for the following year. The dark horse this year is going to be Chelsea, not playing any European football and have strengthened uh, again and are trying to, I imagine, move a couple of players out because their squad roster sheet is looking fairly heavy. But haven't thus far spent 100 million quid on Moises Casado, it would be game changing for, for that particular team. And you mentioned Harry Kane there, he's the sort of player that goes into any team in that top four and probably gives them a shot at the title. So we'll undoubtedly consolidate Bayern Munich's position at the top of the Bundesliga, but Bayern Munich are going to finish top of the Bundesliga with or without Harry Kane. So why go there? It's no challenge. Yeah. Would, would it be better off to, to look at the investment in a, in a Harry Kane and would it be better to look at his value as in? what return on investment they actually get from him. Because if you look at the lifetime value of the investment in Harry Kane, the incremental revenue, he helps to either de-risk yeah. or he brings the upside. Is that the way that people should be looking at it? I swear that some of these clubs are looking at it. So in terms of market value, I don't think anybody will argue that Harry Kane's not worth 100 million quid. I think his goal record, his international caps, his leadership, his style of play, all of that stuff, I think typifies his valuation but the guy's 30 he's moderately marketable he's not a David Beckham or a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Kylian Mbappe who we might come on to in a little while so you're not going to probably generate the sort of return off the pitch with him that you might do with with one of those other superstar signings what you will do is undoubtedly get a hat full of goals that probably propel so I think when we look at return on investment we've got to go beyond that player return so this is not about selling shirts because it's the manufacturers for the most part that generate the the revenue through that you're probably not going to go and sign too many big new commercial deals you might generate a few more fans and it might interest more fans that we can monetize as we talked about on the last podcast which I think might be quite interesting but you probably generate some indirect benefit. So, you know, if he, if a team like United were able to get somebody like him, they may well, well, you would expect them to move up from third to second and certainly challenging the likes of Manchester City for the title. So you get some indirect benefit from that. But as I say, prize money is fairly moderate. So it takes a long time to return. And Dan, what, what does that look like for 
outside of the Premier League, for instance, given your beloved Sheffield Wednesday, do do you believe that those clubs look at signing a half a million, million pound player means that you're going to get promoted from the Championship to the Premier League? Do they look at it through that lens or is it more around what do we need? Yeah, well, great to be back, Neil. As, as Rob said, thanks for having us on again. I'm trying to work out my market value there to this podcast as you two were talking, but let's we not, can talk let's about not it embarrass later. myself uh, <laughs> right now. I, I think lower down the level, I think, again, it's a really important point. We, As Rob alluded to, people fixate on transfer fees and, and then you know we start to talk about the value of the contract and the amortisation and the wages and the cost of that player, but we don't talk about the return on investment. And, and I think it does vary depending on the league and the club again and the situation that we're talking about. So further down the league system, I don't really think there's much thought given to the extra added value. It is purely about what can this player do for yeah. us on the pitch this season. And a lot of the, I say this season because a lot of those deals are signed on short-term basis or loan agreements, and that plays out in the finances of the gaps between leagues, as, as we spoke about on the previous pod. But I don't think there's that kind of real high-level thinking as you drop down the leagues. I, I think that's exclusive to some of the biggest players in the market and some of the biggest clubs. It's always got to be about sporting performance first, doesn't it? Yeah. And you know, a team like Sheffield Wednesday or you know, Plymouth Argyle do a sterling job in some of their trading. It's always about, right, where can we bring a player in to strengthen the performance of this squad? And then it goes back to sporting directors. You know, what does the sporting director see as the longer-term strategy for that club? So are you looking at buying a spine of the team, goalkeeper, centre-back, central midfield, centre-forward that have got experience and then you populate that with some younger kids that you're using as a strategy really to probably use as a bit of a talent conveyor belt that you then sell on. Go back to Southampton's kind of trading activities of, of a few years ago, you know, particularly when they were essentially Liverpool's academy and making a lot of money out of it. Is that your strategy or is it trying to improve your playing performance for the period of the year? Is it trying to get into playoff or, or, or get promoted? Is it trying to avoid relegation or is it kind of game changing upwards of you know winning the, winning the Premier League? The problem, of course, with all of that is when you get competition within the market, it's your closest competitors that then start to go a little bit silly. So, you know, always hear stories about a team that's probably expecting to be in the bottom six that thinks, right, we'll buy that centre-back because they may well keep us out of the relegation fight. And then every team around them wants to buy the same player. So that player's value artificially increases. So does their wage packet. And actually you get a, you know, relatively naff player for a lot of money and yeah. actually that creates a whole bunch of financial issues yeah and I think that that's the risk in all of this isn't it and to go back to the question you you posed around lower down the leagues I think though and I said that often you probably don't strategize that much at that level but because the risk is on divisional status or the next game much more so than it is so you know your, your example of Harry Kane and, and Bayern Munich as an example they can afford it there is some value there for Kane that they can leverage. But if it doesn't quite pay off in terms of what they expect from a return on investment, not that big an issue for Bayern Munich. If that signing at Plymouth Argyle doesn't quite pay off, you might be talking about dropping back down to League One, which can cost you 10 million quid. It can cost 60 million quid to drop out of the Premier League immediately. Because that risk is so heightened, I think that's where I've just come back to that point around the transfer markets always will always be volatile in many respects. And I think we've seen that since certainly over the last couple of years since coming out of the pandemic even in some of the bigger clubs there's been a a slight decline in transfer fees in general terms certainly in English football because of the you know the crippling effect that Covid had on club finances and and that's starting to play out a little bit as well I I think that the points around let's take outside of the big six for a minute you look at the example of Brighton 
right there there's a there's a trading model yeah right they've they've got competitive advantage they arguably outperformed all expectation last year because they've got data and scouting networks around the player recruitment in areas and they're areas that other clubs don't have them and they're optimizing around it because they know it could be a five place differential mm -hmm. by getting the right player recruitment done and also predicting that future value of the resale value but also like if i can get five places higher up in the premier league it's eight million if i'm paying a four million five million transfer fee which is what they did for casado two three years ago and they're going to sell him for a hundred million it's amazing, isn't it? Like, there's, and it fascinates me because there's always a club that does things slightly differently that gets a moderate amount of success. And the the team of the moment is Brighton, as you yeah. say. And you probably put Brentford in and around that bracket, yeah. actually. If you think back, you know, you've had teams like Stoke City in that mix, Swansea City when they had um, Mitchu. You know, completely unheard of, bangs 25-odd goals in. All of a sudden, Swansea uh, end up in kind of mid-table in the Premier League. Everyone thinks that the model is amazing. The challenge is trying to regenerate that trading model and you know, go back to Southampton. They had a history of being able to regenerate those players through their academy, but then have struggled more recently and have had to go out and buy a whole bunch of new, young, up-and-coming talent costing their Premier League place last year. So I think you've got to be really careful on that trading model that you don't weaken the team too much. You've always got to have the next player in. And I was speaking to an exec at a club in the West Midlands who talked to me about, we've always got four players. So we've got the first team starter. We've got the absolute consolidated bench. We've got an up and coming younger player that might or might not have come from our academy. And then we've got an academy prospect. So when we choose to release the player, that's probably first team or bench, that'll be done when we want to do it. And for a price that we're happy to, to deliver because we've got the next player to come through and then everybody moves up the bench and it's a really nice model yeah. but you find so often that clubs don't have that strategy and are then left really really weak so you know classic example very recently you know lots and lots of noise around West Ham United having sold Declan Rice to Arsenal not having replaced anybody in their midfield and you know just about agreed a deal for for James Ward-Prowse at 30 million is a blinding deal in my view because I think as a professional he's outstanding but you don't replace 100 million Declan Rice with one player you probably need two or three it's same with Man United and Casemiro and how long did it take for United to replace Roy Keane and I'm sure you've seen similar at Sheffield Wednesday when you you know you take Barry Bannon out of that team and there's a big, big gap yeah. because they mean more to that team than just that playing performance. Mm. And I don't always think that strategy gets implemented if you've not got the right sporting director. No, and it, and it's a case of holding your nerve on that strategy as well, isn't it? And Brighton's a good example of that. They talk a lot about selling players at the right time, but it's at the right time for them. And I think we've probably seen a little bit of that with Caicedo at the minute, albeit you know, Brighton's dealing with Chelsea over the last couple of years that holding them to ransom. Chelsea will probably pay the fee at some point. Um, <laughs> but it has to be right for that club. And, and I think that what everyone gets caught up in the transfer market a little bit at times is is almost not holding your nerve in that regard as well, um, which can really disrupt the club um, and can actually have a negative effect going the other way. Yeah. I think it's interesting. We're, we're focused on like the impact on the pitch, right? And there's some financial challenges or opportunities that come with doing it. And that's very much broad-based against the Brightons, the Brentfords as well, Sheffield Wednesdays, Forest Green Rovers, let's leave Wrexham out, but my, the mighty Gillingham from the area of Medway Towns where I come from originally. Where does marketability fit in for those clubs, if anywhere, versus big-name players and the considerations that go into that? 
my experience and working with and around sporting directors as I have done for the last five or six years is that it's always sporting performance first. Yeah. We hear a huge amount about commercial value and we talked on the previous pod about the importance of lifetime value and, ex- and, and being able to generate additional revenue through fans. That additional revenue can often be used for player transfers and player wages. So the more revenue you generate, you can imagine that the transfer fees from the selling club will be higher because they know you've got yeah. high resources. And Ed Woodward said, didn't he, famously or infamously, uh, Man United could do things in the transfer market other people could only dream of. So, all right, that's 25% on top of that transfer fee. Thanks very much. Sporting directors will look at that sporting performance and that long-term sporting outcome first. But increasingly, you've got to be aware of the commercial benefit of that acquisition and we've had it in pockets over time particularly players in the far east i think dan you've mentioned at some point uh son at spurs you know huge following therefore in south korea and an opportunity to leverage that particular market now son was signed for his playing performance and i think the commercial benefit was secondary and a nice to have rather than a must to have but i do think clubs will start to look at right well if we sign that particular player it's going to give us a foothold in that market and that's a really big market for us and we'll be able to leverage and you know we talked a bit about brighton haven't we you know i wouldn't be surprised if somebody like matoma is the next on the list of one of the one of the top 4 i fancy man city to have a go at him because i think the opportunity for leveraging a player of his quality with the footprint that he will have as a young up, up and coming player in the fast east is massive yeah. and uh, and I think you'll start to see that you've used convergence a few times you use that convergence between sporting performance and financial return quite a lot yeah and and it happens in pockets as well doesn't it linked to other factors so sometimes it's because clubs are being innovative and thinking outside the box around the marketability of marketability of players further down the league but but often it's a product of other things like ownership structure or you know who's who's running the club or or what's happening behind the scenes you know look at some of the signings that Wrexham have made Forest Green Rovers is a really interesting example of you know a club with a very different identity and everything's aligned around a, a different vision and does that then bring into the players that you're trying to bring into the club and can you market that but you have to do it differently a lot of the time because of the financial resources and the gap. So you mentioned Son at Spurs. Celtic have done similar mm. with you know with a couple of very good players that have come in from from Asia. But that is all about leveraging Celtic in that market, and they have to do that because the money's not on the table there in Scotland. And all right, they they've got the you know they they still have the brand awareness of Celtic globally to be able to do that where others don't. But so I, I think it should be a strategy that clubs are looking at with players but I, I often don't think they are because it comes down to sporting performance yes. or because you've just got a different set of circumstances at that club that dictate that's the direction of travel it's finite as well though, isn't it so the player has a lifespan yeah you know, and it might be a, a single contract you know four or five years and then do you replace that player from that particular territory with somebody inferior or, or actually no you're going to sign somebody else and yeah. fascinating when I reflect on summer tours and the big bounce that we saw in the US and the discussions that we've had around revenue generation in the US and the investment that is coming in from the US into British football there still isn't a US superstar player and it's been fascinating how the US are then trying to start to use non-US players might get onto Lionel Messi soon to to start to really improve the standard of 
that competition or if you go over to Saudi, the signings of players like Ronaldo and Benzema and others, you, you don't have an American athlete yet that's participating properly in the in the Premier League right at the very, very highest level. And obviously it's a huge market for clubs to break into. So I think the sporting performance is still the key consideration. But I think there's a real sweetener if you can get some commercial value out of it as well. I, I agree with you. I, I think that let's talk about the US market and we can come on to Messi shortly within all of that as well. Is You, you look at the size and popularity of soccer in the US market, the lack of production of that top 10 Europe world player or whatever we want to call it and that guy's there's got to be an opportunity for the Premier League clubs or some of the European clubs to invest more wholeheartedly in the academy and the college system. The college system is huge in the US. Soccer is like the most popular sport there. So getting investment into it, and it's not about doing the Man City multi-club ownership model with New York City FC. It's about really aligning yourselves with some of the colleges and investing in like the training and the development of some of these players as well. I think that's that's one piece to keep an eye out for because clearly having a US superstar playing in the Premier League is going to parachute and accelerate any revenue generation that you're looking at in that US market because it is different to having the identity with a club. It is more star-driven. Right? In the US, you've got LeBron James and his affinity with Liverpool. Liverpool, Nike and LeBron James, through collaboration and convergence, are now starting to see upsides in selling new products and propositions to new audiences. So I think there's some like tracks being laid, but to really capitalise at scale beyond going for a star aligning with a Premier League club from another sport, it is investment in those markets to develop those players as well. What's really interesting, and apologies to pick on them, but you look at some of the signings Manchester United made over the, the last eight years and the performance on the pitch improvement that they were maybe seeking versus the marketing improvements they saw through Paul Pogba mm. and Cristiano Ronaldo are probably out of sync with one another. Like, Did Cristiano Ronaldo help Man United sell more jerseys? Yes. Did Paul Pogba increase Man United's social media footprint because of him and how topical he is? Yes. Yeah. Did that translate to on-field performance? Probably not. Or if so, not consistent. games for Manchester yeah, United. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And he's not even played six games for Juve in the last mm. year since he went. So I will leave Paul Pogba alone. Let's get back to thinking about the US market. So with anything in the introduction stage or when you're trying to increase market share or visibility in it, it does take either high-level sponsorship. And in this case, I view Lionel Messi as being the super sponsor or advocate of the MLS. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you think he's going to do and deliver not just to the MLS, but specifically to Inter Miami and maybe the vision that they have there? I think there's something in here around kind of brand alignment. We often talk, we talked about it years ago, actually, around, and and it's it, and we will go back to Paul Pogba, actually, if it's all right. So you <laughs> take an athlete like Paul Pogba, was endorsed by Adidas that was moved into a club that was sponsored with all its merchandise around, through Adidas. You had that immediate affinity. Uh, the standout in that um, tricolor, to use a French term, was the fact that the French national team and Nike at the time, so you did, so you lost a bit of that um, that brand affinity. You got it with David de Gea actually. So he moved as a Nike athlete to Adidas when they took over the kit sponsorship at Manchester United. So you then had that individual team and uh, national association. So you can really maximise the the exposure that you get from yeah. that particular player. And that now is what we have with Lionel Messi at Inter Miami, Adidas athlete. An Adidas merchandise club in Inter Miami and in an Adidas 
uh, merchandise national association with Argentina, notwithstanding the fact that the South American market is completely crazy in terms of its fanatical fans, and uh, and the states are trying to tap into that uh, that bit of market. So you get that very linear progression with with somebody like that who is clearly a face of global football, um, and it's fascinating how the MLS have managed to to activate that deal because because of their salary cap system there's nowhere they could pay him the sort of money he needed to transfer over there would have been better off going to uh, to Saudi if it was just on a pure yeah. club to uh, club to player payment basis but the way they've been able to do it is uh, is really quite creative I, I think that's the really fascinating there's two fascinating things which you've just talked about there with that one is aside from what he brings to it which we're pretty clear as you say we all know what kind of status he's going to elevate he's already elevating that club to and and that league as well as a whole but the structure of the deal is fascinating around as you say you know we talked on the last pod about these differences between the american model and the european model of sports but i believe that part of that deal was that all of the clubs have have footing some of the fee or it was certainly on the table that some of that would have been you know shared amongst all clubs in that league and and what you can never see that happening in the european football landscape as an example because they can see their whole mechanism of thinking is that yes Lionel messi will directly benefit into miami but he will also benefit us as a whole as the league's trying to grow and maybe you can get away with that because it's in still in its infancy stages as you say maybe if we were talking 20 years down the line that deal doesn't get you know talked about in that way but that's a fascinating thing in terms of how that deal came about and the other thing as you mentioned is of course he could have gone to saudi arabia and there was a, a big money offer on the table but how many times during their careers have we talked about messi versus ronaldo and now we've got messi versus ronaldo again in a very different way on a nation basis. on a nation basis between the mls and the saudi pro league which will be the next biggest battleground for the next probably 10 years or so maybe if if that kind of traction continues so I think there's a couple of really interesting dynamics not just in terms of his his marketability and and his sponsorship as you termed of of what he will do for the MLS but the way those deals came about and now how that's positioned in world football has really shifted the dynamic again yeah I I think the, the structuring of deal making and the role that players have in emerging markets and this called the US emerging we can come on to talk about the Saudi Premier League in a minute so the, the US market, the Messi deal or the construct of what he's trying to achieve for the MLS isn't new, right? It started with Pele, had yeah. George Best playing over there as well, David Beckham. Was that just about bad timing or is it about that investment in those players is now starting to show the maturing and the demand for the MLS in conjunction with the popularity of women's football in the US as well? Do you think now's the right time for the MLS? It's like anything, isn't it? It's incremental progression. You build history over time. And, you know, think about what they tried to do in the Chinese Super League most recently. They were trying to buy 100 years of football history in a very, very short space of time by, you know, signing big players, big coaches, big deals, buying clubs in Europe and so on and so forth. I think what we've seen in the MLS is this kind of incremental progression that's quite well thought out, it's quite joined up, there's a lot of revenue generation at its heart. The reason why the clubs were happy for Messi to go to Inter Miami is because it's good for all the other clubs. So they are likely to sign more commercial deals because the MLS as a product is much more popular as a consequence of having Lionel Messi, as it was for the record when David Beckham went over to LA Galaxy. And, you know, his wages were suppressed, but all of a sudden he's able to acquire an MLS franchise and, you know, he's got a wonderful spot in Miami. They're just about to build a new stadium next to uh, Miami International Airport. I don't know if you've been, Neil, um, 
but the Inter Miami Stadium is just like a carnival atmosphere. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's in the heat of hot tubs. Uh, yeah, heat of Florida. You know, kind of cabanas and bars, and it's just a really relaxed atmosphere. It's almost like you're born to play there because it's just a quality, really, really quality environment. And that's the sort of image the MLS are trying to portray: is that it's new and it's vibrant and it's upcoming. And couple that with the growth of women's football or women's soccer, the the relative success of the US national team. I think you kind of got this really close relationship between playing talent, team talent, although there's still a long way to go for the MLS to rival, you know, some of the bigger European leagues. But I think you mentioned it on the last pod, you know, bigger sport now than uh, than Major League Baseball, um, sellout crowds in lots of the uh, lots of the MLS teams and the uh, and the division that that sits beneath it. Very professional in- industry as well. So investment in data analytics, investment in high quality head coaching, um, in performance coaching, uh, in sporting directorship, and all of those functional things that you need in a really professional organisation. The MLS is properly on the move. I think it's a really interesting way to pose the question as well, because d- does that messy deal? as we're talking now, happen without the Beckham deal? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and you're absolutely right. It, things take time and, and it's easy to say, oh, this is a flash in the pan. The Czech people will point to the Chinese Super League, as you mentioned, but that, that kind of stopped for very different reasons. That was government policy that was dictating the direction of travel. So it's easy to say it's a one-off, it's a flash in the pan. But actually, this has been a long-term view for the MLS for much longer than, than we're sat here talking about now. And... And there's a lot to be said for that, but it but it does take time. And I think again, you know, maybe as you said, Neil, we're talking about it being a, its starting point, but maybe this is the real point of growth. Maybe the starting point was years before. It's just taken a long time to get everything in place underneath. Yeah. Let's be clear, though. The th- I think it was the thirty-first MLS franchise sold. I think within the last twelve months, five hundred and forty million dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sold for more than Newcastle United sold for. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not a kind of farmers' league. You know, small little industry where he's kind of gone in like probably Pele and George Best did when it was really, really at the start of its yeah. uh, of its journey. This is a a sophisticated, well set up, constructed, principled on the basis of its collective bargaining and how it runs contracts. Very, very solid market proposition. We were saying foundationally, the MLS has got all of the parts assembled. Question to you both is. Is the MLS trying to compete with the Premier League, the Bundesliga, La Liga, or are they trying to find their way into more of a world order of sports leagues in football? And if so, how does that investment in infrastructure and trial and error, because they've gone on a journey, compare to what we're seeing in the Saudi Premier League? That's a good question. I My gut tells me that they're not trying to compete with the European football market. They're trying to compete for supporter dollars in the states you know massive market we know how big the nfl is you know people that talk about football being the biggest game in the world are actually talking about the nfl because the super bowl is much more lucrative than you know champions league final premier league so on and so forth um so i think they're trying to compete for american dollars first and foremost and i think they're trying to then make sure there's a pathway through from south america into the into the mls team so that they are a bona fide professional organization that's situated in the states and then we might see some expansion of that dan might have a few other comments to add to that but in the context then of the saudi arabian league it is chalk and cheese you know the mls has been around for a long time it's incrementally built i think the saudi arabian league is much more aligned to what we saw in china a huge amount of government involvement a huge amount of funding from the state 
we may or may not get onto kind of sport washing and re-imaging areas and you know saudi actually is quite far behind the likes of qatar and uh, and dubai uh, and abu dhabi in terms of its kind of cosmopolitan image and and all of that stuff so i think saudi is just at the very very start of a of a journey time will tell whether it has any longevity i think when you look at the abu dhabi investment into manchester city it suggests that there is at least some sort of kind of longer term plan but my goodness me is it expensive to keep doing it and you know you can't keep spending the sorts of money that they've spent over the course of this summer and paying the wages that they're paying because the reality is they're not generating off-pitch revenues over in Saudi uh, just at the moment and there's a huge amount of work for them to do if they're going to globalise it and get the you know big sponsorship and commercial revenues and broadcast rights. I mean, what's the... Is it Dazun or BN have paid like half a million quid? Half a million quid? for you know, UK rights. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah, most so. Premier League teams turn that over with half full stadiums every weekend. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's going to be the biggest challenge for the Saudi Pro League moving forward, for sure. We know the financial power is there to fund it internally. We've seen the PIF um, privatise four clubs and you know look at the way that's structured. And people will naturally draw comparisons to China, as you say. Um, I think probably the financial power is more significant than, than China and there's probably a bit more staying power than that. But it's going to be 10 years before we can really measure it. But the international angle to it is going to be key for the Saudi Pro League, which is where it is very much in its its startup stage, and and signing bigger and better deals in the future with international broadcasters and and getting international eyes on screen is going to be for sure the biggest element of driving their growth. If they get to the, can they're talking big, you know, they're talking top ten leagues in the world. That's where they want to position themselves. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes sustained growth over time. But getting international eyes on screen is going to be key to that, much like we've seen with Saudi Arabia and Live Golf in in a similar way. There was no broadcast audience for that in the first few months and into the first season. You know, some of those competitions were being shown on YouTube and there was no real broadcast structure in place. Now, obviously, they've gone in a different way and, and merged with the PGA. So those are all interesting things, kind of subplots to this but you're absolutely right to, to grow that you've you've got to get internationalized on screen and, and broadcasting and commercial growth will be key to that i can't help but feel like the the saudi league they're not paid ridiculous transfer fees if you look at the, the listings of all of they are they're buying players approaching probably the latter part of their careers with very low resale value kind of feel that they're looking at the asian audience as their real target market for mm-hmm. how they want to monetize this right now yeah, I think you're spot on. I was thinking then, as Dan was talking, that you'll know when the Saudi Pro League is here, when they sign a 24-year-old or 23, 24, 25-year-old starting to peak player from the Premier League. That's when you'll really know they've arrived because it'll be big transfer fee because the playing potential is on is about to go up on an accelerated curve rather than kind of just about peaked. And, you know, I know they've signed a couple of players at kind of 27, 28, that are, but they're almost at their peak. And then you've kind of got Ronaldo that wants to keep peaking, but he's probably slowing down a little bit. And it's that kind of Middle Eastern to Asian market that I think will be really fertile ground for them. I, I really think you'll start to see some pathways exist because we don't have a huge number of kind of, well, very, very few Middle Eastern, Indian subcontinent, Far Eastern players that are participating in the top five European leagues. And I wonder if the Saudi Pro League might become a bit of a training base for that. So incrementally make your way kind of west and, and yeah. try and play a trade in the uh, in some of those European top five leagues because you've had an opportunity to play a much more serious level of football 
because the standard in the Saudi Pro League will naturally start to improve as yeah. as more and more of these players go in. So are we really face with the Ronaldo versus Messi or the US versus Saudi debate that we hypothetically think is a story and there's probably demand for that story to unfold when the leagues are realistically, strategically quite different. For me, we will be faced with that story because that's where the national attention, and you can see it already, we shouldn't just be talking about that. We should be talking about the strategy of, of both of those leagues and actually the way in which we talk, when we're talking about it very much in disruptive terms with, with Saudi as well that we've seen with the transfer market and how it might distort some of these things. But there is the other side to that as well in terms of you know what it will do for the wider football leagues in in the world, as you were saying, with pathways and, and ways to connect and, and partner and things like that. So, yeah, I think inevitably people will go to Ronaldo v Messi because we've been doing that for all their careers where, wherever they've been. Um, but there is a much bigger picture here that we should be looking at as well. And, and that's about the sustained growth of, or not, of both of those leagues um, in the future and how that then positions where those leagues end up in the alignment of you know the current world football structure. Something interesting in there about that Ronaldo Messi debate, and we've all got our favourite. Um, and you're not giving away which which side <laughs> of the fence you're on there. I think it's the CR7 shirt. That <laughs> always the CR7, yeah, yeah underneath. <laughs> um, when Messi transferred to PSG and Ronaldo obviously went back to Old Trafford, you know that was what the world was talking about, and it was Messi's gone to a, you know substandard league he should you know he's going to score loads of goals and actually he's nowhere near the performance level that Ronaldo is he's still applying his trade in the top end of Premier League and actually it's flipped hasn't it because I think the Saudi Pro League is much more emergent and therefore the standard's going to be lower and Messi's gone into the MLS which is I think comparatively more competitive and, and higher albeit still kind of second division uh, in terms of global scale of, of league so I think those parallels are going to continue to be drawn. And then, of course, you've got the Nike versus Adidas angle to this as well, which is equally fascinating. And you know, I'm sure there'll be people searching Instagram and TikTok and goodness knows what else social media uh, accounts start to start to get followed by those particular players and then see the bounce of the respective club accounts. Because we know that we, we've heard a lot about Inter Miami and we've heard a lot about the MLS. I've not heard this. I, I genuinely... Can't remember the name of the team that Ronaldo's playing for right now in Saudi. I know they wear blue and yellow shirts, and I follow a lot of football. Yeah. And it might be my absenteeism because we're sat in the studio, but I genuinely can't can't recall who he's playing for. And I think that, if we're not overgeneralizing a personal view, I think that's actually quite important but because there's been so much noise in the Saudi market of, of so many people, go, so many coaches going in, so many players yeah. going in, that actually it's been really difficult to track those player movements. And as Dan mentioned... Lots of fans will actually follow the player first, which is why you saw such a bounce when uh, when Ronaldo went to yep. Manchester United. Although I think Ronaldo lost more followers when he left yep. United than we than did the United analysis did. and it it showed it. Yeah, yeah, he he lost lost more. What's really interesting about the Messi Ronaldo debate, and I'm going to nerd out and be a data guy for a second, <laughs> so bear with me, everyone on, and also you guys. We we know that they fundamentally have different audiences. They appeal to different people. So Ronaldo. This is generalising. There's obviously pockets in it. Highly indicative of people who like pop culture, reality TV shows. You're they, painting me out to be really, really strange here. Well, you had disco music <laughs> on before we came in, so there you go. So he he has a lot more of that kind of celebrity kind of audience and fixation around that type of audience profile, while Messi's is really, really different. He's a very heavily over-indexed around gaming, hip-hop music, and they have out and out love for football. 
So right. you've got this very big contrast around the makeup of their audiences, which, as per our start of our conversation around marketability, probably hasn't factored up beyond the reach that they can generate into those decisions. But that's an interesting backdrop around how you want to appeal to the masses, because that's what they, they are two vehicles to appeal to the masses, and what propositions that you could present against all of those there. It was what I was thinking about when, when you were both talking there. So that going back to that marketability of, of players, you know, clubs nowadays are becoming much more aware of that as well, particularly as we know that fa- that fans follow players, not clubs, and, and their allegiance will change some fans, you know, in that regard. We're talking about two players there that have had a ridiculously successful career but are coming towards the end of their career. I suppose the next big one is probably Mbappe, who is, as much as anything, as we were talking off air, you know, an entrepreneur as well nowadays, and, and it's about a lifestyle brand that aligns with him his other business adventures and where he positions himself and then the club that he is playing for at any given point in time. And and I think just, again, probably the biggest clubs are in the best position to capitalise on this, but it has to factor into the conversations about who are you trying to go for in the market and, and where's the value proposition of, of the players and alignment with the club as well. Wow, who would have thought that the transfer window ending would have stimulated such debate around marketability data oh my audiences player value i think it just goes to reaffirm the belief that we all have that football is big business and it's global business as well there's mature products mature leagues and there's emerging leagues that bring new challenges and new opportunities within it so rob and dan thanks so much for spending probably the best part of an hour entertaining everybody who's tuned in here and obviously me as well thanks everybody for subscribing liking viewing and sharing caught offside we'll be back with you in a matter of weeks looking forward to dan and rob being involved again on all of this safe travels guys cheers neil